I never actually thought about what he might have sounded like. I had heard throughout my whole life, you know, you look a lot like him, but I'd never once thought about his voice. And it's so funny, you don't think about the absence of a voice until you hear the voice. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. Hi, this is Matthew Philp. In September of 2021, writer Michelle Dawson Haber published a modern love column in the New York Times entitled, Hearing His Voice Changed Everything, with a subhead that read, I never knew my father, did he know me? There's a link to the story on a post on our Instagram at Tell Me About Your Father if you'd like to read it. In the essay, Michelle detailed how, decades after her father's suicide, a cousin gave her a collection of audio reels of her father's voice. She gave them to her sister Ruth because she'd only been three months old when her father died and she'd always felt that Ruth was more their father's daughter than she was. Then several years later, Ruth digitized the recordings, listened to them, and subsequently urged Michelle to as well. Describing the exact moment she heard her father's voice for the first time, Michelle wrote in the essay, Hearing his voice, my indifference evaporated. Until that moment, I hadn't known what my father sounded like. I had gone my entire life without realizing that I didn't know. Modern love columns are one of the most widely read features of the New York Times. Anyone can submit one, book deals are regularly born out of them, and there's a Modern Love podcast and a scripted series on Hulu called Modern Love that takes its inspiration from the column. After the essay came out and her story resonated with people, Michelle was interviewed by several media outlets, including on NPR. She's now hard at work on a memoir about her journey to discover as much as possible about her father. When I read Michelle's Modern Love column back in September, I was struck, actually shocked, by how similar our father experiences have been. Losing a father when very young, to sudden unexpected death, and having very few, and in Michelle's case, no solid memories of him, but having recordings of his voice that feel foreign despite being a reliable primary source, being given the distinct, consistent impression that dwelling on or talking about the death made people uncomfortable, and being urged to simply move on for the sake of politeness. And those are just some of the similarities. It was a striking thing to read. So I reached out to her and asked if she'd be interested in doing an episode of this podcast. But rather than simply be interviewed about her story, something Michelle had already told quite beautifully and comprehensively at Salon.com and in The Times, I wanted to craft the episode around a conversation between the two of us, comparing notes on our similar experiences. I've written and published about a range of topics professionally, but when it comes to the death of my father, I've only written one essay and published one short podcast episode, which is sort of odd when you think about how impactful an event it was. The essay was for the 2019 book launch party for my co-host Erin Hosier's memoir, Don't Let Me Down. I read it aloud in front of an audience, but it wasn't published. 
Then, around a year later, when we launched this podcast, I published a short episode in which I talked with my other co-host, Elizabeth Thompson, about my father's sudden death when I was almost four, and about having a few short recordings of his voice, the only ones that exist, in which he talks with me at seven o'clock on June 17, 1980, the day before my second birthday, and just under two years before his sudden death from heart failure, while running in the City to Surf Marathon in Sydney, Australia. We know it's that date and time because I'm prompted to say I am two tomorrow and the grandfather clock chimes seven times in the background. In that episode, I talk a little about the immediate aftermath and then some of the more resonant effects of it, but I had this feeling that I'd only skimmed the surface. I've never thought that I avoided the subject having talked to numerous therapists about it over the years. But now that Erin and Elizabeth and I have produced more than 50 episodes of Tell Me About Your Father, and I've spoken with dozens of people specifically about theirs, I'm not so sure. So the episode that follows is my conversation with Michelle Dawson Haber, who was generous enough to go along with this slightly different kind of interview, which is the product of three separate conversations that I've edited together. When I interview someone, I always try to remain in the background so that the person I'm talking to can be the focus, often removing myself almost entirely from the final edit we use. For this episode, Michelle was kind enough to talk with me for several hours before we recorded and then shared the interviewing process on two more occasions. You might notice that some of the sound quality is inconsistent in parts, and the reason for that is in some instances we had to go back and re-record my responses because without realizing it, I avoided answering several of Michelle's questions or I didn't say the full story on the first and second tries. I suspect I did this in part from force of habit, but also I think many of the things we discussed were difficult topics. In comparing the experience I had with Michelle's experience of losing a biological parent and then connecting some of the dots on them through recordings of his voice, I managed to uncover something or at least articulate what it was like in a way that I have not been able to do before. Rather than just being a recounting of trauma, we talk about our attempts at discovering who our fathers were, And we talk about what you can take forward after experiencing something so strange as the sudden loss of a parent. Just a heads up, this episode contains frank discussion of suicide in the first quarter, and I've included a call out to give you the chance to skip ahead if you'd prefer to avoid listening to that. So here's my conversation with Michelle Dawson Haber. Since your story came out in the Times and you did the Ira Glass piece, What's it been like for you to have this story very much out there in the world? It's been incredible, really, because I felt when I wrote the story that I had people to reach. There are so many other people walking around who didn't know one of their one of their birth parents. For example, as in your case, the death of the early death of a parent, donor conceived children, war orphans, abandonment either by the mother or the father genetic surprises. And so you get a whole lot of people walking around feeling these feelings that they don't understand about their missing birth parent. And so my writing and my memoir, I hope when it's out in the world, is about the importance of pursuing one's origin story. And although my family story has plenty of trauma in it, I don't want to write another trauma memoir. What I want to show people 
is how necessary and how good it is to know where you came from and by extension, who you are. And so that's what I think I'm doing. And the responses I got to that essay were very much like that. So people wrote to me and said, oh my God, you're, you're actually telling my story. And I, I heard from so many people, a bunch from Latin America, which was interesting. From Latin yes, America, yes. really? Mm -hmm. Why so many people from Latin America? I think there are some international distribution type things. And I also, I was on an Italian podcast where they read my piece. They shortened it. They rewrote it. They shortened it, read it in Italian. And they asked me, they asked me for the recordings and I said, nah. And so they made one up. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah, they made up a father and a daughter talking to each other. It was pretty funny. <laughs> funny? That's insane. That's like on the level of like Kanye West creating a hologram of Kim Kardashian's dead father and then voicing. Like, that's insane yeah. as a gift. That's so crazy <laughs> I to know. Me. You could have sued them for post-traumatic stress. I could have, but I let it go. I mean, who has the time? Yeah. Um, but why do you think you were compelled to speak about this now? I think it just had to, it was my own personal timeline probably is, is the really the only answer when in 2018, I um, was the first time I heard those reels. I'd always wanted to be a writer. And so I wrote a bunch of fiction stories that went nowhere and short stories, not book length. And uh, I always knew that I was going to spend more time writing one day, but life just got in the way, you know. And then in 2018, my sister finally digitized those reels we had been given um, by our family. And, and I heard his voice for the first time and it was just like the earth opened up and swallowed me up and, and I just needed to know more. And I thought this is the book I'm going to write. And unlike all the other things I had tried to write, um, this one was not one I was going to let go. I felt that it was a story that was really important to tell, not just for myself and for my family. Um, but also, as I said earlier, the themes of origin story and finding out and knowing the first chapter of your life, essentially, uh, they're common with so many people. And I, I yeah. thought it would help. And I think it's common to your story too, right? Yeah, you have this linear narrative that is your life, particularly thinking about things as a writer, where there are gaps, it's like, well, I only have one life. And what happened at this point? You know, I have to, I want to know every detail of what led up to who I am today. Exactly. Because I'm the only person that will truly ever know that about who I am. So it's like, there's a, it's a very precious thing. I, you know, it's funny. A friend of mine, Linda, once was accosted by someone in the street from Scientology and like a Scientologist trying to kind of get her to come to a Dianetics meeting. And the person said, you know, what's the most important thing in the world for me, for you? And she, assuming she would say something like, I don't know, whatever. And uh, both of Linda's parents are dead. And she said, the most important thing to me is memories. So thank you, Scientology. You're not needed. Yeah. Um, that just but it's gives also me like, chills. That gives me chills. Right. Yeah. It's truly, that's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think also 
what struck me as something that I identified with your story was the urgency with which you went after this information because um, not only do you want to know, right, but there's a certain point where all the people who knew your father will have died and then bang, you can't talk to anyone who knew him. No primary sources anymore. So you have a limited period of time to gather this information before it's no longer available. You're right. Um, and that is, I think, a pretty intense motivating factor. But also, there's something so specific and unique to certain people about having everything you know about your genetic father quarantined to a series of recordings and letters and memories, and memories are not particularly reliable. So recordings and letters are like, there you go. You can't argue with that. That's right. It's like a really strange thing because some people don't know anything and never will. But people like you and I, we have these primary sources and that's it. So we get something, but it's not ever going to be enough, you know? I know. Yeah. I didn't realize that I was running out of time with people when I started. I just thought, oh, I'm going to read these letters I stole from my mother and I'm going to listen to the tapes. And then I became more and more obsessed. Right. And what, you know what's weird about that is I lost mine for probably like six or seven years. Actually, maybe longer. And because it was a tape, you know, made in 1982. My mom used a cassette recorder. That's, you know, the technology. So my godmother, who lives in London, sent it to me when I was in high school. And I'm, so I had it from then and then I lost it. I came to America and I brought it with me and I just couldn't find it. And I went through everything I had. I would periodically upend my apartment trying to find it. And then I would go into the state of denial. Like, how could I have lost this thing? I'm going to pretend like there is actually one at home in Australia with my mother. It's fine. I'm just in denial. I wrote to my mom and said, like, do you know where it is? And then she didn't. And then I would not think about it and be annoyed at myself for a year and then I would you know and then it occurred to me in 2019 to just write to my godmother and go hey do you have a copy of this and she's like yeah <laughs> great so, I was wondering whether I should say this but I'll tell you because I may as well one of the weird things about the way my body processed trauma was that a lot of it um manifest in my digestive system when my mother remarried, I was suddenly like incontinent constantly for like weeks. Wow. It was a trauma response. And then there was just a period of time where this was happening over and over again. Um, then, so it would kind of prop up anytime anything kind of happened that was to do with abandonment. Um, my like whole digestive system would go haywire and, um, in a like really internal painful way um and i sometimes go to like the emergency room um after a breakup something like that it was this the abandonment trauma coming up again mm -hmm. i just wanted to take a moment aside here to say that what i was talking about at this point was rectal hemorrhoids 
I realized after my third conversation with Michelle that I was just avoiding saying what I'd actually experienced. So that's it. Excruciatingly painful hemorrhoids that required at least a dozen surgeries over the years, all related to moments of extreme anxiety connected explicitly to moments where I experienced something associated with abandonment. So what was interesting about this was that when I asked my godmother if she had the tape, there were about four days, five days between when I asked and she said yes and when I actually got it because mm-hmm. she digitized it and emailed it to me. So we now have a digital copy. I was utterly constipated from that moment until I received the tape wow. um, recording. And then once I had it, I was no longer constipated and I immediately needed to go to sleep for five hours. And I'd never slept that well in my entire life. I mean, I, you know, like living in New York, you never really sleep properly. But I, this was like having had surgery or like, you know, like the, the, the tiredness that comes from side effects from Moderna or something. It was like this intense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's weird to talk about that, but that is absolutely what happened. And it did not shock me in any real way. So it kind of emphasizes the profundity of having these very important recordings. Just as another aside, for the next four minutes and about 18 seconds, Michelle and I discussed details of her father's suicide. So if you want to skip over it, this is where you'd fast forward. And I, one of the things we spoke about was the potential presence of a recording of your father's death, the actual moments, his actual last moments. Um, do you know where this tape is? Do you know if it's real? Who told you about it? What is the story here? So my cousin, long before I, you know, my quest started, it was years and years before my my cousin in Israel gave me a small reel. And the technology we're talking about is, you know, pre-cassette ticks. Um, a small little audio reel. And she said, this was the last recording your father made. And my memory of it um, was her saying he recorded it as he was dying. In other words, after he swallowed all the pills that he hoped would kill him, he pressed play. And I thought that was ghastly and morbid. And I was not at all impressed. Like, who does that, right? You, yeah, you're not. I'm not impressed. Yeah. That's deeply tasteless. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and now maybe she was mistaken. Maybe it was a misremembered memory on her part because she was only a child too. Um, nevertheless, my sister and I started talking about, you know, this being the death tape. And so we talked about, you know, listening to the death tape, but we didn't. And then everyone we we told about it, they said, don't listen to it. You, just don't listen to the death tape. And so we didn't. And then years and years passed and she was visiting me and I said, do you think we're ready to listen to this? And she said, yeah, maybe. And I said, I don't think it'll do anything to us. And so I said, I would, I would go uh, get it um, digitized, but I didn't get to it right away. And then I forgot about it. And then it disappeared. Like I literally can't find it. I mean, you eventually found your recording. Uh, to this day, I've not found it from the once I made the decision and once I had planned to execute that decision, the tape was gone and I have turned my house upside down and it's it's just not here. But are you 100% sure that this tape, this death tape, 
actually does exist at all. I mean, it is fairly shocking to think about. And is it possible that there is a tape or some document that was the last thing he did, but it is not a recording of what he said after he swallowed pills? Like, is this one of those things where the story has been conflated and changed over time? I mean, we're talking about decades and we're talking about children's memories. It It did exist. I was handed a tape and said, this was your father's last recording. And in my memory, and at the time, I thought that's what she meant. I do think it's possible. Back when I had this exchange with my cousin, it was years and years ago, right? And I hadn't started my quest yet. And I now have so much information, including the police report. It's possible I twisted my cousin's words. It's possible she conflated two stories into one. We do know that he while he was waiting, he wrote words on a scrap of paper that was beside him. He may have also made recordings just saying goodbye to his family that were done earlier in the day. So maybe those two stories were conflated. She herself was a child um, when it was all happening. And so who knows? Memories are so fallible, even fresh memories. If there were recordings where he said goodbye to his family, I might be interested in hearing that. But certainly not, you know, pressing the tape recorder no. and, and listening to him expire. Um, but, and back when I said it wouldn't have impacted me, I said that, you know, before I knew anything about him and before I felt any connection to him. And so, of course, that's all changed now as well, right? So time changes everything. And if that tape were to magically turn up and I listen to it, you know, probably be impacted but luckily i'm not faced with this dilemma i thought it was interesting when you said in the times that you considered your father your sister's father he wasn't your father that's right yeah you know and i guess you don't know anything else so it's like that's from for an outsider that's like a pretty intense thing to hear somebody say even as a kid right but then that's what your experience was that was so. my experience but that was also you know it, it depends on the day, right? When my when my stepfather right. was pissing me off, I'd, you know, sulk in my room and say, well, he's not my real daddy anyway. You're not my yeah. real father. <laughs> yeah, that old classic line. Yeah, um, yeah but I, I definitely, when I thought about our family's history, I said, okay, this happened to my family. This happened to my mother, to my sister, to my father. I never framed it as this happened to me. It just I didn't frame it in that way until 2018 when I heard those reels. Well, that's the thing. So you heard his voice for the first time. What actually happened in that moment for you? So my sister had been given all these reels. Actually, I had been given them. And then I passed them on to her thinking, you know, this is more her thing than mine. And so she she found someone who digitized them for her. So they were off busy digitizing them and I was getting WhatsApp messages on their progress. But um, it was only when she said, you know, Michelle, you've got to listen to this. It's really incredible. I was at work and I said, hey, can you wait till everyone goes home? And so it was five o'clock and she played it to me on Skype. And my, my, I guess my first emotion was anger. I was him for leaving us, you know, almost like, you know, all the stages of grief, right? And it was sure. like I was experiencing that first stage um, 53 years later. 
even though you knew that he had died of suicide. You'd found that out when you were eight years old. Yeah. I don't know how old yeah. I was, but yes, I or knew. Or something like that. You were a kid. Yes. Yeah. And so I felt anger at him for leaving us because for the first time, hearing his voice made him real to me in a way that nothing else did. Like I had photos, yeah. right? Um, and I had a couple of stories, but the voice made him real in a way. It was like, it was like almost three-dimensional, you know? It was more than a photo. It was like, here is a person and damn it, you left us. Why did you do that? And so anger was yeah. my first reaction. And then I thought, wow, I never actually thought about what he might have sounded like. Like, you know, you kind of, you know, I had heard all throughout my whole life, you know, you look a lot like him, but I'd never once thought about his voice. And, and when I heard Which it, Which is I, odd because he was a singer. Exactly. I mean, you knew that about yeah, him too. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so you just, it's so funny. You don't think about the absence of a voice until you hear the voice. Did that happen right. for you? Yeah, I was actually listening to the recordings before we sat down today, and I was like, I want to see what comes up for me. I was listening to, you sent me some of the recordings that you have, and they're remarkably similar to what I have. Mm -hmm. um, a man, um, you know, joyously playing with a child. Yeah. That's what I have um, as well. And then I, so I listened to yours, and then I was listening to mine, and I find myself doing the same thing. Just as an aside, I thought now was a good time to actually play short excerpts of both Michelle's and my recordings. The first is an excerpt from Michelle's in which her father, Eliyahu, is speaking in Hebrew, playing a game with her sister, Ruth. And this is a short excerpt from mine in which my father Ross is trying to get me to talk about random things. What does the chicken say? And tell me, what does the cowboy say? Maybe lion cowboy. That's my boy. Right on, cowboy. And what does a sailor say? That's right. What does a sailor say again? Does the sailor say what? Do you know what the sailor says? That's right. Heave ho, my hearties. That's the boy. <laughs> Every time I listen, I try to find a memory where I can see him talking in front of me, and I don't have that. Um, and then I start trying to decode his character through what his voice sounded like. Mm. Like, how well-spoken was he? Yes. Um, how Australian is his voice? How, like, how much of a, how much macho, like, can you get in it <laughs> like what would he have been an asshole to me as a 
queer kid? Like, these are the questions I'm going through by just listening to his yes, voice. we parse it. And I go, yeah, and I'm, like, making this crap up because obviously I could never know. I mean, I, I've heard from people very kind of, I think, reliable things, but, you know, so I'm decoding this voice mm -hmm. for myself, putting this pattern together kind of obsessively almost. And then they've got, what strikes me ultimately is this utter mystery. Yes. Because I'm like, it's so weird to me that this is the only recording that exists of this man's voice. And he lived and died in 1982. And then I go to a bigger place like, oh, imagine the millions of people that have never been recorded mm -hmm. that just pass away into time. And then it's like the big existential thing. What does it all mean? We're just grains of sand. So like I kind of fall into a ludicrous cliche. My friend Martin listened to it once and said, oh my God, he sounds really well-spoken. <laughs> um, and you grasp onto those things, don't you? When someone says something Yeah, nice. it's particularly yeah. if somebody else is like, mm -hmm. oh wow, I guess I can, I get something from it. It's like somebody else can hear it. That must right. be true because, right. you know, but that's an obsessive need that I think, you know, it was interesting to me the way you said that you became obsessed with finding new details. I did. What was that obsession? What's, what is that obsession about, do you think, huh. for you? Well, I didn't understand it at the beginning when I first heard that real, you know, I, f I had all these feelings and then my sister and I talked about it the next day and I said, I'm going to write a book about this. And she said, cool. you know. And my reaction, you know, my, and just to give some background, throughout our childhood, I was, even though I was five years younger than my sister, she was the one always pining for my father because she was five yeah. when he died. And so she thought she should remember him and she didn't. And she demanded answers from my mother and didn't get them. And so it was me she turned to for support. I was sort of like, I like to say her comforter in chief, you know, she, she would come yeah. to me and cry and I would do my best. And I felt like I had a special role. You know, I had this responsibility to protect my sister. And, um, and so I was always taking care of her and her obsession. And even when I handed those reels to her, you know, who, who knows when it was, when I got those 25 reels, I think it was 2007, uh, I said, you know, he's more your father than mine. And I meant it at the time. And it was only when I heard his voice that I became obsessed. But, and when I said, I'm going to write his story, I truly wanted to know about him. But I also thought this is a way to heal my sister. And so I again wanted to... I was again protecting her, thinking my skills as a researcher and a writer is going to help her and so she can get closure, etc. So it was always about finding my mother's story, finding my father's story, healing my sister and telling her story. It was never about my story, but the more... So it's like acad almost academic. Yeah. Like you're just sort of objectively doing this. Right. Thing. But the more I dug, the more she kind of pulled away and just went back to her life and, I, <laughs> and it took over my life. And, you know, I had 400 letters to read through and 25% of those were in Hebrew. So I had to hire translators. And then I started traveling and my sisters, I have a younger half sister. Um, they started to make fun of me, like, you know, stalker <laughs> Michelle, <laughs> finding all these old ladies all over the world. Um, and I just became obsessed and I didn't understand why. And the more they pulled away... Um, the more I, I thought, you know, I got to finish this. I got to finish this. And so I'm reading letters. I'm, I'm trying to interview people. I'm researching early music in the 1950s. 
And even when I had everything really that I have now, I couldn't stop digging. And then something really transformational happened, which was I heard this psychologist talk on a podcast of a friend of mine, Michael Grand, and I, I reference him in the essay because he was really so important in this journey. He is an adoptee advocate, and he was talking about um, the sort of existential questions that all adoptees ask, and he was including step adoptees in that. He himself is a step adoptee. And he said, adoptees don't know their chapter one. They don't know their origin right. story. And so it's like they have this circle with a gap in it, and they're trying to close the circle. And I thought, wow, that, that is totally it. That is absolutely it. That's what I'm trying to do here. And then the next thing he said was, We're, we want to know as adoptees, we want to know that we mattered to our birth parents. And I just like broke down in tears because I knew that he was talking to me in that moment. It was my absolute truth. I, even though I had all the information I probably was ever going to find, I didn't have any evidence that I mattered to him. I had like, right. there were like hundreds of photos of him with my older sister, not a single photo of me, not a mention in a letter other than I'm going home for the birth. Right. Um, and so I kept looking, I kept looking for that evidence and I never found it by the way. But once Michael Grand articulated it for me, I could go, oh, that's what that was. That's what the obsession was. And I could just sit back and say, okay, I get it now. I'm probably never going to find out that he mattered to me, but that's okay. I understand now. And I'm just going to say, you know what? He mattered to me. And that's where it starts and that's where it stops. And, um, and I, and I started trying to find his old friends, you know, and I, I heard relatives say, yeah, you know, your aunt, Sarah knew him well. She just died six months ago. <laughs> um, yeah, missed another one. Um, yeah. and I found myself beating myself up, like, and my sister too, my older sister, like, why didn't we ask earlier? We just, you know, it was, I mean, she had different reasons. She actually did ask plenty of times. And was right. always rebuffed. But I didn't really think it had anything to do with me because I was only three months old when my father died. And and your story is different, right? You you actually have memories. For me, I felt like I was almost manufacturing memories, you know, like reading the letters and and talking to people and trying to imagine the kind of man he was. But you're luckier in that respect. You've got something to grasp onto. So there's like all of these like brief flickers of images that I have. I don't know what my earliest memory of my father is, but I do have a memory of sitting in the living room. We had these blue curtains. I remember him tickling me. We had a green car. I remember having a younger brother, Peter, but I don't remember my father ever interacting with him. I remember the morning that he came into the kitchen and told us that my mom was pregnant with who would be my youngest brother, Andrew. And I remember he was like really happy about that. These are all just like photographs. And then what happened was then I remember the day he died. There are some memories that are like gifts, you know, like not 
not a film that like adults running. Um, and I remember some things before and after, but not during. So it's like, I haven't just forgotten because it was a long time ago. There are certain things I can't remember. I don't know why. My aunt sat down and told me that I had said to her, I was afraid my mother would die because who knows? I mean, I guess the reason I felt that way is because like suddenly death happens. It's like, well, who knows Who's why next? does death happen? You know? Yeah, yeah. Like this could happen. I don't remember that conversation, but that happened after my father died. And I remember the death. I remember being at a picnic with a stroller, other kids. And then all of a sudden adults running. And then I remember there was like a kid who came up to me and said, your dad's dead in this like kind of mean way, but he was too young to really know what he was saying. And I remember my first reaction was to go, yeah, I know. Like you're coming for me on something. You're, you're just like being mean, but it's not going to affect me. That was my reaction. I remember right. that. So the nature of these memories is really strange, but I do have them. I don't remember other th things that I wish I remembered. I wish I knew. Um, that's why it's interesting listening to his voice. Cause I don't know why I, I, I because I don't have memory of it naturally. So you don't have memory of, of that of event, voice, the recording. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, I don't cause I was too, but also I just had no memory of his voice. So, um, I do have memory of both my grandmother's voices and they died more than 20 years ago. Mind you, I was an adult then. So it's, you know, I don't know. It's like the nature of memory. The more I think about it, the more memory is so unreliable and weird. It is. Yeah. You can't really trust your own memory on things. Do you find, okay, I feel weird asking this, but given the timing um, where you were three months old when he did die, did you actually implicate yourself unf unfairly? Yes and no. I think more so I think of it as the opposite when I do think about it, and that's more now than than before. I think about what did I do wrong? What didn't I do to keep you here? Was I not I mean, I was a cute baby, so that wasn't the issue. But maybe I was colicky. Yeah. I don't You're know. You're objectively cute. Yeah. <laughs> objectively cute. I mean, it, no one can argue with it. I have the photos. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, what I do wrong, and my sister feels that a hundredfold. So, yeah, you do get, you definitely go there. Can I say that I didn't matter to him? I can't. Just because there's no evidence doesn't mean I didn't matter to him. Um, my right. sister most definitely mattered to him, but still he left her. So, yeah. you know, who knows, who knows, but it sure would have been nice to have found just one photo of the two of us. I would have yeah. been so happy to have found that. Yeah. I have some, I have some photos, but I mean, I, I look at them and I'm like, firstly, who is this kid? And secondly, I just stare at the photos and I was going, wait, who were you? Like, who were you? So it's such a strange thing. And then you go, this is actually half of my DNA. This right. is half of exactly. me. Comes, and that is unfathomable. I don't really yeah. know how to place that. It's just so funny how much of our identity is connected to names and biology and blood and all that. And it's reminded me 
of my whole name journey. I've had three names, uh, two from yeah. fathers and one from a husband. It's all fraught with patriarchal convention anyway, as you know. But only my last day, only my married name did I choose. I remember the night before my wedding, we were all gathered as a family. And someone said, are you going to take on your husband's name? And I said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm not that attached to Dawson. And then I sort of gasped and I thought, what have I said? And I pulled my, my stepfather aside and I said, I didn't mean that. That sounded horrible. I'm so sorry. And I, I felt awful because it didn't reflect how I felt about him. I loved him, you know, very much um, as, as my adoptive stepfather. But even in that moment, I felt the absence of a blood and biological connection. When, when I was five, my, par my, my mother and my stepfather got married in 1968. And then two years later, he decides to formally adopt me. And I actually don't know why. But I pulled out my adoption decree. And not only does it legally change my last name, it explicitly erases any connection to my biological father. And I just want to read it to you apart. Can I? It yes, actually please. says... It is ordered, adjudged, and decreed that the prayer of the petitioners, the petitioners are my mother and my stepfather, the prayer of the petitioners herein is granted, and each of them is hereby constituted a parent of said children to the same degree and effect as if said children had been born as the issue of the marriage between them. So in other words, my birth father is gone from the records. Those records are sealed. And I am to be, I am assumed to be the, the child of my adoptive stepfather. And so that just blows my mind, you know? Yeah. I think the, the idea is it's a way to keep the, the father of the child attached to the family. If, if he knows the children right. hold his name, then he's not going to yeah, run right. off, right? Keep, them, keep the father <laughs> entertained by like flattering his ego exactly. and legacy and all this crap. Did you change your um, name? What's funny, my mom, when she remarried um, my stepfather, she did, but me and my middle brother, Peter, did not change our names. My youngest brother, Andrew, went for a while as a double-barreled name. Mm -hmm. So my stepfather's last name is Belgum, and so it was Belgum Philp, Andrew Belgum Philp, when, and I was Matthew Philp, and Peter is Peter Philp. Um, we then moved to California because my stepfather's family lives in California, so we went to live near them for a couple of years. And so we all changed our names to Belgium. And I was like all for it because I thought, because I was sick of actually being asked why I had a different name to my parents. Yeah. No one would do that now. You're right. Like, you'd no just one be would. like, I don't know. Yeah. But like, and I, and every time someone said, that's weird, I'd have to go, right, because my father died and this happened and then this happened and then they just kind of shrug and I'm like, why, why do I have to relive this horror mm -hmm. just because you don't know why I would have, like, I don't care. And so then in California, it was like, great, don't have to answer that question again. Um, and then as a teenager, shortly after I discovered the recording of myself as a child, I went, nobody's looking for this information about my father in my family nobody would talk about it i appear to be the only one who will i want to know and so i'm going to have to take the initiative and i'm going to have to look for it myself and i'm going to have to take back my own name 
because there aren't that many people who have it. And so when I got my license, I had it changed back to Philp and I went by Philp um, from my senior year of high school onwards, um, which was odd too, because my friends would call me Matthew Philp, but then on all the documents, I was Matthew Belgum. It was just like really strange. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I, the privilege that I have as a male is that I, that was an existential identity thing that I decided entirely on my own. Mm-hmm. And I was glad as a kid, you know, it was like, great. Don't have to talk about the trauma anymore. But you had it in all of those situations. You either had no, like there's this patriarchy that you're up against or you didn't have agency in erasing this history. Right, yep. Um, but also my family did kind of not talk about it on purpose. I would ask and no one would, they'd all change the subject to be polite. Right, so that like, happened well, in my family not, too. Yeah, they didn't want to talk about it at all. Well, I mean, this is one of the big things I think is kind of astonishing about your story. In your father's letter, in his um, suicide note, he mentioned that she was to tell you that he had died in a car accident. So my sister, from my earliest memories, my sister was always crying and pining for our father. And... She was asking even before she found the suicide letter. And then when she was, she was um, 14 and I was nine, she went looking, she was babysitting us and she went looking for something. And she said later, her subconscious knew, her subconscious was saying to her, I hope it's in English. I hope it's in English. And then she found it and it was a suicide letter. And she didn't know he had died by suicide at that moment. She must have known deep in her cells. Um, but she didn't know. And she found the suicide letter and it was indeed in English. And she pulled out a typewriter and she copied it and then she put it back and she showed it to me. And I was only nine. Right. Um, thought, wow. You know, I, I mean, I think I remember feeling kind of, you know, privileged that we had a really cool, morbid secret in our family. And I somehow instinctively knew that I could be trusted not to blab about it because that was, that was how our family operated. You know, my grandparents were like that. They, they didn't tell, they didn't air their dirty laundry to anybody. And then as my sister grew, she kept going to my mother and saying, will you tell me how he died? Will you tell me about him? And my mother would cry and say, not now when you're older she would be sent off and so my mother wouldn't talk about it and I don't know to be honest if it was because in that suicide letter he had said just I prefer she wouldn't know the truth just tell her it was a car accident I don't know if she was actually following his instructions to be honest she had a psychiatrist at the time um that said, it's better you don't. I mean, that was psychiatry at the time. It's not the advice she would be given now. Um, but it was also sort of, um, you know, you don't talk about those things. And I, But I couldn't say it to my mother because as children, as you said, we don't feel like we have the agency to yeah. ask questions and to stand up for what we want to know. And when adults shut us down, we think, well, okay, they know best, right? Um, right. But I was, I was mad at her for how 
it was impacting my sister because it was my responsibility to keep my sister safe, of course, right? And it was my responsibility to hold the family together, right? And I didn't want anyone to cry and I didn't want anyone to be upset or get divorced or what have you. Um, and so if I blamed her, it was only because of um, the impact, the negative impact that secrecy had on my sister. But now, and that was back then. Now yeah. I think, you know what? You should have just told us. Our lives would have been so different had she just sat us down and told us the truth and spoken freely about him, who he was and what kind of person he was, both the good and the bad. How did you um, approach raising your sons in terms of communicating about difficult things in the sense that your family, they did not, and that seemed to be the core of a lot of the anger and issues that you had. Were you very open with them about all sorts of difficult subjects? How did you approach that? I was, um, but they didn't ask questions as my sister did. And so I would periodically tell them whether they wanted to hear or not, but their response was, okay, why are you telling us this? <laughs> so I was always ready for the questions, but they rarely came. I don't know if that's a gender thing, but... Um, it also because there was nothing missing in their that's life. That's right. They've had a pretty stable and, and normal upbringing, so... Which is good in itself. It is, yeah. yeah. I mean, to, to hear about members of my family and what's happened to them is just, you know, titillating maybe, but they don't feel like it affects them. But I think yeah. now learning about their grandfather... I, I think it's made a difference in their lives. The crazy thing is what, one of the artifacts I found in um, with my dad's passport was a little business card. And it was uh, a little icon of a movie camera. And it said, um, photographer, and I, I do weddings. And <laughs> when I found that, my older son was also doing weddings. And he, he's, in, he's in film. And he was just so blown away because... As he, as he said that um, there's no one in the family um, that is involved in a visual medium. And so all of a right. sudden I tell him, hey, your grandfather is doing the same thing that interests you. My, grand, um, my father was not only an opera singer, but also a photographer. Um, and so he was really, really blown away and, and proud and felt like he also could fit himself in in the family's history and continuum, right? Like, yeah, like there's something in him that came from his grandfather, and right. and no one actually thinks about that, right? Until presented with with some of those uh, facts, and when you actually see the evidence, and mm -hmm. you're like, oh, cool, there's some, yeah. there's something I I belong to a lineage of something, right, right. When I went back to Sydney a few years ago, um, invited my godfather who hadn't. I had not seen since I, I don't remember seeing him ever, actually. Um, and my one of my father's other best friends who'd known him since he was a kid, and we invited him over for dinner. And um, I recorded the whole conversation, just where, like, they talked about things they remembered of him. Um, and... It was really useful because it was really great because um, David, one of my father's friends, his wife, Lisa, just she actually knew many of the stories. And she's also really like, 
I don't know, she just was great at running a room and she kept, she kept them on track and she knew how to prompt them. I didn't expect that, but I found that really astounding. And, um, what I think what I was looking for in that conversation is to find out if my father would have approved of me. I think that's ultimately what it was. And also the other information that you want where you go, oh, who am I? Where do I come from? But I hadn't listened to the recording of it until last night. And that was, I mean, this was in 2000 and I don't know, 18 or something. I, I got this recording and I had not listened to this two and a half hour long discussion until last night. And it sort of does fall into the same category as having a recording of my father because, and I was interested to know if you had the same sense at some point when you actually got the recordings, because after I listened to it and I had this whole emotional response, I felt like a sense of relief that that information is safe. I own it. It's here. It's not going to be erased. It can't be. I own that. And it's by no means a comprehensive history of my father or anything. It's sort of just a bunch of memories. But having that made me go, okay, I feel really good that I have. Did you feel like that? Were you like, oh my God, these are precious, this recording? Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. and yes, it's, it's as if you, it's, it's as if, uh, you have the ghost of your father, you know, with you, or you somehow managed to snag him out of the ether and, and, and connect him in, in time and space and maybe not time, but maybe something that's, that you can touch and hear and experience and, you know, that was more than I had before. And so now I have it. And so, yes, it absolutely is precious. Yeah. In terms of looking for clues about the character makeup of my lineage, for want of a better word, one of the things that came up in the dinner recording is that my father moved to Washington, D.C. for a period of time in the 70s. Just, you know, like Australians do that. They just go overseas. Mostly they don't come to America because well, certainly not that it just wasn't that easy. It's not easy to do. You can go to England. It's easy. Go to England. You hang out with other Australians for three years. You work in a bar and they, or whatever that he went over and somehow got a job. And I was looking at that going, oh my God, is that like a template for me that I didn't know existed? My aunt moved to Paris and I always feel like I idolized her for that. But it's another one of those things. It's like, oh, my father had this interest in America and came over, loved, came up to New York several times and went to places in New York City. And like, it's weird living in New York City because I go, oh my God, he was here at a time in the early 70s. I live I here now. You. you know what I mean? Like there's a connection. Who knows what the connection is, but it's like, because it's not like he could just walk into a job here, although it appears that he did. I guess white straight men could do anything. I mean you know, really like literally just walk into a consulate. He's apparently used to go to parties at the state department. Mind you, security, I'm sure was like a lot less than it was now. Well, he had a cute accent that probably helped him. (laughs) Sure. He had a cute accent, but he also was like 
deeply charismatic. Mm-hmm. And I, and I listened to his best friends talk about how he would have gone and run for office. And it like part of the reaction to listening to them talk about him. And this is like first hand accounting recount of his life. I just thought, God, what a terrible waste. Like what a, what a sad waste. Also, there was a story my mother told about when he died. She was not allowed in the ambulance. It was unclear whether he, to her at that time, whether he had already died. We found out later that he died before he hit the ground. Oh. Heart attack. She said, oh, he'd had some chest pains that day. So he, this happens. Everyone's frantic. An ambulance arrives. She's not allowed in it. She doesn't know whether he's alive. And then she goes to the hospital. They don't let her be with him at all. And then the only thing they do is say, can you please identify this body at a certain how awful. And when I heard that, that really infuriated me. Um, because also, you know, processing this kind of thing, she said, you know, what would have been helpful at some point would have been counseling of some kind. And I, and I, you know, like for anyone, I was like, yes. Um, but they just didn't know. And I think that was part of it. Like nobody talking about it. So it's so strange for me to have learned that it was something to not talk about and that despite all of these reactions, all of the digestive upheaval that I had as a child, because you know, you go through all of this stuff, right? And you discover this and retroactively mourn your father. You discover a connection that was there. And you're fascinated by this and you want to go and find out what happened. These are things that happen, but I don't think that I don't, I don't like the idea of like just anchoring identity and trauma. I agree. So, you know, I know that you've said that about, that's why you want to write about this. So it kind of leads me to say, you know, what are we, what are you and I left with? Well, gosh, that's such a good question. And I mean, I'm, I'm going to answer it for you first, what you have, and it's the same as for me, is you have stories and you have um, a friends and family's view of him that, that make you feel proud of the man he was. And, and that reflects back on you because you're his son. And for me, it's the same. I, I didn't know anything about him. And now I know so much. I went on this massive quest and found out everything I could. And, and it's, you know, it, they say in the adoptee community how important it is to know where you come from and that everyone has that right to know where they come from. And as a step adoptee, I sort of had one foot in each camp, the biological camp and the adoptee camp. Um, but knowing who your parents were, and in your case, finding out more information, hearing his voice, hearing the stories, it makes, I believe, makes you feel more complete as a person. And it certainly has done that for me. Um, because I, 
I know I have a personal narrative. I can tell my story from the beginning. You know, it's, it's interesting speaking about that exact thing. I've been thinking about this over the last couple of days, knowing that you and I were going to talk again. And it occurred to me that you also get like a lot of understanding about what it is to be a human, or at least what it is to be you, mm -hmm. your own reactions, how your memory works, you as a person in the world. And sorry, I'm not <laughs> one does. Um, well, I don't uh, have any memories, so it's a little bit different. No, but I mean, you understand yourself in relation to this and then the world. Absolutely. Like you have yeah. these like difficult, but you get wisdom in a, yes. in, a, in a quick way of saying it. And I think it surprised me to realize that the most dominating emotional response that I got from my father's death was a sense of loneliness that was so... It's so broad that it's like you get used to it. And I'm not alone amongst people. You know, I have friends. I have my, I have my partner, Scott, who I love, like, and my family, you know, like, and Scott's family and also my friends here, you know, but there is a sense that you're isolated in relation to this experience. And it's because the experience is one of abandonment. Then they're no longer there. So you live with them gone. And then if somebody tries to fill that space, they're not enough. Mm -hmm. And then any kind of loss of connection is a weird reference to it. But also just like not having a father is like, everyone has a father, you know, but I don't. So I'm like weird and strange and not like other people. I felt profoundly alone in our house as a child. I felt like I was weird. Uh, my, one of my father's best friends kind of, I was like, I gave him father's day presents one year and it was just so, I felt so awkward and I was like five. So that's why when you wrote the story in the times, I had such an emotional connection to it and went, I have to talk to this person because it's like, somehow you gave permission to me to have a dialogue about it or even to discuss it at all. And like the same thing happened with Erin Hosier, whom I do this podcast with, because when she she published a memoir about her father. And when I got to the part where her father had a heart attack while running, and then he was taken to hospital and then died there. She was 27. It's sort of marginally similar to what I had, but not really. But I was still like, oh my God, Aaron, both of her fathers died the same way. You know, like I couldn't say it. I can't talk about it alone. Like you, you helped me to talk about it and Erin did as well. So I guess I'm like really grateful for that. Um, I'm not sorry. I don't guess that I am very grateful to you for talking with me about this on three occasions, this occasion being one where we're redoing it because I couldn't answer them the first time. And I avoided answering questions you asked, um, and it's also like in that loneliness, I think there was this sense that I don't 
know whether I exist. And so you and I talking, I go, oh, oh, Michelle knows what I'm talking about. And you know what I mean? It's such a I weird do. dissociative experience because I walk down the street sometimes and I'm like, oh my God, I have hands. I am made of flesh. I'm not like electricity floating around. Like I don't, it baffles me when anyone reacts to something I do. Plus I have these really challenging arresting moments when these specific memories are, are tapped into, but I find them kind of precious. Like, for example, I really fucking hate the smell of a florist. I do not like the smell of florists. The generalized blend of all the different flowers together is horrible to me because flowers were delivered to us every single day for I don't know how long after my father died. And now that very specific smell is imbued with a memory of that very, very sad time. And I remember taking flowers to my mother when she was crying and saying, these are supposed to make you feel better. Like I didn't know what to do. Similarly, I can identify very, very strongly with a character, a film or a TV show. The film Onward, I found overwhelmingly difficult to watch in, in it, but in a way I was really grateful for that because it was so similar to what my experience was at the very end. The picture of the pregnant mother, the child that is really young, and then the father is gone. When I saw that at the end, I actually burst into tears and then said, what a treat to, to have this emotional experience. And recently I was watching the TV show Pachinko on Apple Plus, and I had an immediate overwhelming response to a scene where a seven-year-old boy is watching his um, stepfather dragged away by the police, put in the back of a car and driven away. And they just stay with this boy. And this boy pushes through a fence and he's like running after and just calling out and calling out and calling out and calling out. And then the camera looks back so that you can see the father who knows that this boy is running after him. And you can tell that the father is like unable to do anything. And I found that just so overwhelming. Like I was hungry at the time and our food had just arrived and I just couldn't eat it when I saw that. And then a few scenes later, there is a situation where the mother of this boy is on her own. She has to figure out how to make money. So she makes all this kimchi, takes it to a market and is being pushed around and she's trying to survive by herself. And then you see the camera pan right into her face and see her just summon her resolve, which she knows she has, and she survives. And those two scenes back to back, it was almost too much for me to handle. I had never realized that there was a connection between me seeing women who are like that and me feeling overwhelmed by the memory of watching my mother have to do that too. So I actually don't even mind any of these things. I don't mind any of these things that, that happen to me when I watch TV or a movie or when I walk past a florist that I won't go into. Like, I'm not happy this sad thing happened, but I'm really glad that I've had to learn these things about being a human and being alive and that I have this understanding of how 
emotions are stored in my body and it makes me feel like I'm alive or that I exist. It makes me feel like I definitely exist when these things happen. The upside of it is also that I got to talk to you and I got to read your stories. Um, and I got to experience your generosity with talking no, to No, you're me. melting me right now. <laughs> I, no, I, I appreciate it very much because it helped me feel like, as I said, like I exist in the world. And so. I think that's why, and, and I'm just so incredibly thrilled that it affected you that way because it just helps, you know, to talk about it. And to know that you're not alone and you're not the only orphan out there or the only disembodied soul that doesn't know quite where he or she belongs, you know, and yeah. I totally get you on that. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Please. So you conducted the interviews and you imagine that really the bottom line objective that you had was to figure out if your father would approve of you and the person you've become. So what answer did you get from it? Oh, my godfather said that he would, you know, like I said, you know, I guess that's what I really am asking. And he grabbed my head and he goes, he'd be so proud. Oh, <laughs> it's so weird. I'm like weirdly emotional about this. When it's I talk perfect about time to get emotional. That is exactly <laughs> what you want. It's your father's pride. Yeah. That is totally what you want. Well, it's also like, I mean, I also think I believed him because he was talking about the moment that he found out my father was dead and he told the story of being sad and drinking lots of wine and asking his friend David to come over so that they could like commiserate. But his body language as he spoke, you know, like he was a very charismatic charming guy um he's really fast and witty but when he started talking about that he, he kind of just like went inside himself and physically just changed i could tell that he cared deeply about my father like he would have known you know yeah in terms of writing a book it's a long time to spend dwelling on this yes and you're opening this up to be a thing that people will know you for and you'll in is this a subject that you're prepared to have come out so much more in your life to define larger parts of your life than it ever has yes i mean i'm writing the book because i think it will help people i, I try to focus on the greater good which is when you share a story, just as we found each other, you know, there's so yeah. much, there's so much comfort and pleasure from, from knowing that other people are experiencing the same thing that you have. And, yeah. and if I can inspire someone to, to go out and find and uncover their origin story, if possible, then, then I'm happy because everyone has the right to know their history. Everybody. Yeah. Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, 
Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.